Hello, I am Colleen Parrott with the Space Foundation, and you're listening to the Space for You podcast. Space for You is designed to tell the stories of the amazing people who make today's space exploration possible. Today, we are joined by Aaron Rothersberger from Lockheed Martin. Aaron is the Mission Operations System Lead for the InSight Mars Lander. In this role, she is responsible for successful operations of the spacecraft in flight and throughout the landed mission. Previously, she worked on the interplanetary mission experience on GRAIL and Juno missions as a systems engineer and for MAVEN, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, or MRO, Odyssey, GRAIL, Juno, OSIRIS-REx, performing real-time operations. She lived in England for four years, working on IS and GS on DOD projects. She is a Master of Science in Mechatronics, which is Mechanical and Electronics Engineering, in case you're like me and didn't know the, what that stood for. I'm from the University of Denver, and she has a Bachelor of Science in Physics from the Colorado School of Mines. She lists some of her interests as farming, including plants and birds, running, cycling, and pyrotechnics. And I think everyone should have pyrotechnics listed as one of their interests, because that's pretty awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us today, Erin. We're thrilled to have you. Yeah, excited to be here. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about how you got your start with being a Mars explorer? Well, uh, as I mentioned in my previous experience, I actually started as Moon Explorer with the uh, with the Grail program. Uh, I uh, I'd been working in engineering in in England, northern England, and when I moved back to Colorado, I started to uh, search around among the various jobs that Lockheed had down here in in Littleton, and uh, saw a posting for part of the uh, commercial civil space and, and deep space exploration, so deep space exploration, and came to the interview and was just basically like a kid in a candy store, was super excited at the prospect even of working on an interplanetary mission, um, something I think that I kind of saw in college and, and definitely saw with Lockheed uh, when I first applied. and just super excited to, to get the chance to be a part of it. So when I joined, I joined with the GRAIL mission. Um, and when that ended at the end of 2012, uh, moved over to the, the Juno mission, which is the Jupiter orbit. We were doing our first flyby operations the year that I worked on Juno. Uh, when that scaled back, then I, you know, to, to complete the rest of its cruise before it arrived at Jupiter, then I popped over to Insight, and I've been working on Insight since the beginning of 2014. Awesome. Now, growing up, was being a planetary scientist something you dreamt of doing? I don't think that I knew the career existed as a kid. <laughs> you know, I think there was a, a lot of kids, like many kids, a fascination with astronauts and space as far as what you could actually do in space or work with in space beyond being an astronaut i didn't know i don't think i knew what careers were out there probably until until college okay so as a kid and even as you went into college did you have a favorite subject that you liked to study 
Um, do you feel like any of those subjects are really what put you on the path to becoming what you do today? I think I was I was drawn to math, or I did partially because I did well in math, and I think part of that is because of how it follows its own rules and the challenge of solving puzzles. Um, as far as or you know, solving problems, solving puzzles is very very much in my nature and the more you get into certain math problems especially algebra you know it is solved it's almost more like solving a puzzle than it is just an assignment or so it's just it's more like it's more like solving a puzzle and i think that's where i was kind of intrigued or kind of hooked by with um, math classes not to say that there weren't upper level math classes that had me banging my head against the wall <laughs> but then there was you know when i took physics classes and mechanical or mechanics physics classes where you could take a lot of those equations that you learned in algebra and trigonometry and make predictions and have them come out accurately because of the math and how that math governed the physical world, uh, I think was was probably the, you know was, was probably a revelation. I think you know especially early physics classes where you know you're you're launching the marble across the room and it does exactly what you've predicted it to do on paper was just, you know, it was, it was fascinating and it was cool and it was, you know, just applications of, of math that, I don't know, were fun, I guess. <laughs> well, and I always enjoyed math as well, but, you know, a lot of times we hear, well, you'll, you'll never use this as an adult, but we don't always realize that math really isn't everything that we do. So, like you said, to be able to see you the marble doing what you put on paper you know, I've always found that's a lot of fun to see and realize, well, maybe we do use it in real life. We just don't always think about it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. I totally agree. So can you tell us, like, how do you prepare to explore a place that is truly remote like Mars, somewhere uninhabitable, uninhabitable, excuse me, without the right equipment or the communications between here and there where it's not instantaneous, there's that lag between it. How do we prepare for that? Uh, piece by piece, essentially. So when you when you get into engineering and specifically systems engineering, one of the things that, that we do or that you'll hear a lot about is the systems engineering B, and that's where you take something at its highest level, like say I want to do a Mars lander, and you start breaking it down piece by piece. And then you say, okay, well, I want to do a Mars lander. And you say, well, what are the major aspects of a Mars, Mars lander? <laughs> and you think communication, thermal, power. And then you take each of those sections and you break them down even further to say, well, how much power do we need? And what's the temperature going to be like where we land? Everything we do here is pretty specialized. So. It's not like you, even though we base the InSight lander off of the Phoenix lander, uh, our environment and our mission is completely different. So we can build on what we've learned, but we have to take everything and adapt it for a custom, a custom solution, a, custom, you know, a specific problem and a custom solution because there's no two interplanetary missions that are, that are quite alike. So yeah, everything we do is custom, and so we have to take each problem and basically break it down and come up with a solution that works for that environment and for that particular science mission, especially to make sure that we get 
the support structure in a in a spacecraft that the scientists need to do that mission on Mars. Okay. And you said that you're currently working on the Mars InSight lander, um, and you've mentioned you know, we said at the beginning there's many different interplanetary missions you've worked on. What prior jobs and in, and experiences prepared you to do this type of work, even before Lockheed, perhaps? Well, I don't know that anything quite prepares you in the sense that, you know, like I said, everything is everything we do here is, is pretty custom. As far as skills and, and, you know, you need to be able to learn, um, you need to be able to treat everything as a learning ex- experience. And, you know, a big, a big part of this is trying to be able to track and organize all of these individual quirks and specialty, you know, specialty items associated with, with doing a Mars, with doing a Mars lander. Do you have a teacher or a mentor, someone that's inspired you? Um, not really. I mean, I had teachers, you know, in my past that were um, influences, good and bad. Nobody really that, you know, nobody that that uh, I can say specifically led me to a position in space, though, I don't think. Okay. Was there anything in, about space in particular that intrigued you? You know, I studied I studied physics, so there was a point where we did a classical mechanics course, and we did a number of um, plottings and recreate, you know, plottings of interplanetary trajectories. And at one point, we had done some computer modeling to recreate Voyager uh, Voyager trajectories, and I think that you know the the, again, sort of the puzzles of steering spacecraft among planets governed by um, physical laws, you know, such as, you know, the gravitational pull and working with that and the time and the, the discoveries that came back from some of those missions, or, you know, they came back from all of those missions were, I mean, they're just unlike anything else that, we, we dealt with even just from the subject material, I think, in any of my other classes. And it was, you know, I kind of reignited probably that childhood fascination with space and astronauts. But, you know, further out than we could, than we could send people than we've ever been, you know, we've been able to send people. Absolutely. And that kind of takes me to my next question here a little. You know, we know there's, a lot of challenges with getting beyond the moon right now. So what are some of the challenges to just landing a spacecraft on Mars? What are, right? I mean, what are not the, there's, everything has to go right, especially when, you know, when you're trying to land a spacecraft on Mars. We talked about this a lot leading up to, to EDL or, you know, I talked about leading up to EDL as far as, you know, if you don't come in at exactly the right speed and exactly the right angle and it's exactly the right location, you could burn up or bounce off or wind up trying to land in an area that's full of hazards and just not be able to touch down safely. And 
So, um, yeah, and then just anything of, you know, when you, even if you, if you hit that upper atmosphere at just the right speed and just the right angle, everything in your sequence to control your, your landing, your propulsive landing has to go just right. Um, you know, sort of the, the relay race would be each stage has to hand, hand the, hand the baton to the next, to the next runner, to the next stage. And if anybody drops, you know, you're out of the race. That's a great way to think about it because it is, it's a sequence of events, really. So, you know, on that topic here of, you know, landing on Mars, you know, prior to actually landing on Mars, um, the media and NASA reported the seven minutes of terror. Um, And that's, you know, the moments before, you know, the spacecraft has landed safely on the planet's surface. So, I've got to ask, are those seven minutes as excruciating as the media and NASA describes? On some level, it's a, it's a little surreal. So we had a groundbreaker on this mission where we had the first interplanetary CubeSats trailing behind us, and they were able to provide a bent pipe communications for us. The orbiters at Mars that could see us weren't able to basically, what we call bent pipe communications is where it can immediately turn that signal around and route it right back down to Earth. So we were fortunate that, one, we had these, these little CubeSats and they functioned all the way to Mars and they did exactly what we needed so they were able to turn that data around. So there wasn't any, while there, there's absolutely a lifetime delay, there's nothing you can do about it, it, it kind of, the, the lifetime itself kind of fades into the back of your mind because you're just looking at the data as soon as you get it. So you kind of, at least for me, I almost kind of forget that it's already happened because you're so focused on the data that's coming in at that moment in time and just waiting for that next piece of information. That the fact that it's already happened, it kind of, you know, it gets pushed, pushed to the back of your mind in favor of what you're seeing in front of your eyes. Mm-hmm. Well, and I would think in today's modern world with, you know, our cell phones and things, we're, we're pretty used to that instant gratification. So maybe it's better that you do forget that it has that lag and you're just focusing on what's there because I know that can be really challenging for some people. Yeah, we, uh, we got, I got kind of spoiled. Um, the first, because the first mission I worked, the first interplanetary mission I worked was GRAIL, which was a set of twin moon orbiters. And round-trip light time to the moon and back is, you know, two seconds. And at one point we had this kind of funny thing where our, our voice nets, that we use to, to talk, you know, when we're doing a lot of the commanding on the nets, somehow started getting broadcast over the Cassini nets at the time. So Cassini was a Saturn orbiter. And our, our basically our spacecraft team chief for, for Grail had a friend on the Cassini mission, and she called him up, and she was like, I am so jealous of your light time because we were basically receiving instantaneous confirmation of everything we were sending to the Grail orbiters, whereas Cassini was waiting seven hours. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. It could be a little, a little frustrating almost <laughs> for them. <laughs> well, how long and intensive is the planning process um, for a Mars mission? You know, what does the review process for the mission entail? Well, it kind of depends on how much detail you want to talk about in terms of planning. Like, if you want to, if, if you talk about starting at the top level, 
when a principal administrator or a scientist proposes a study to say, you know, there's, let's study the interior of Mars, and NASA says, okay, that sounds interesting, and sort of downflexes it, and then you start working on a proposal with, um, like Lockheed Martin will start working on a proposal with that scientist to say, hey, here's how we think we can technically achieve your uh, putting your seismometer, put, putting your experiment onto the surface of Mars. Um, and once you get, you know, to, to a certain level in that proposal and you submit it for review to NASA, and NASA says, okay, you know, that seems feasible, that seems cost-worthy. If you get selected, uh, that's when we really start getting into uh, the detail. So when you hear about discovery uh, proposal selections or new frontiers selections, that's when we basically get the go to start that's when we know we're building a spacecraft. Okay. So that, that can be years leading up to that process in terms of before you actually get your program selected or your spacecraft and your science selected. I think OSIRIS-REx actually submitted, I think, twice before they were selected for a mission. So yeah, again, that can take years, decades even. I think if you talk to the InSight principal investigator, he'll tell you he's been working on this for the last 20 years. So once we get selected, that's when we start diving into requirements, and then we'll start down a series of reviews. So we'll have preliminary design reviews and then critical design reviews. And in each step, we say, here's the requirements we've come up with, here's our plan beneath these, and we present that to a board of NASA um, NASA people, industry members, you know, they'll, they'll assemble a review board to try to ferret out if there's any areas that we've overlooked um, or the program or the project has overlooked in terms of appropriate planning for the Mars mission and then we'll focus on that as we go towards the next review. So we'll do preliminary design review, critical design review, uh, operations readiness review at each stage of the, the project. Um, we just uh, detail, we get more and more into the detail of the mission. So it's just a very long process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, was gonna say, I think, so from the time we get selected to the time we launched InSight was, I want to say we were selected for the first, for the first phase of our development at the beginning of 2013 or the end of 2012 and we launched in May of 2018. We were originally slated to launch in March of 2016. Uh, the, the seismometer had some concerns with the, uh, the vacuum chamber in which it's a very precise seismometer uh, and it operates in a vacuum chamber and there were some concerns with that so they delayed the launch because if you're gonna go to Mars, you gotta make sure you get it right. There's no way to there's no way to fix the seismometer after you've launched it. So always makes sense to just take that little extra time. So in Insight's case, nominally you were looking at a three to four year build to launch process. And we did say sort of I mean the spacecraft team essentially took a, a year off the project at JPL and the seismometer operations at the French Aerospace Agency and CNES worked together to make sure that they had a solid fix and that we weren't going to have any issues with that seismometer vacuum or that vacuum chamber on Mars. 
yeah, when you think about it, I guess <laughs> three years from the the start of build, or three to four years from the start of the build to launch is a is a pretty. It feels like a pretty speedy turnaround for sending something to Mars. Absolutely, considering how long it takes to get there in the first place, and you know, like you were saying, you want to make sure things work right because if something doesn't go right, you can't just send an engineer to you know take a peek at it and get things going again. So, right, and a lot of that, you know, was things that that come out that we. We do extensive testing during our uh, assembly, test, launch operations, the at-low phase of the program, which is basically when we're building the spacecraft up right up until the moment it launches. We do a lot of testing on the flight hardware itself and on the flight software on the vehicle to make sure that it all works. And we put it through various environmental tests as well, you know, in what they call thermal vac where they'll chill it down and they'll put it in a low low pressure environment as it will experience in space and then also on the surface of Mars. So you've obviously been working on InSight for you know several years now and it sounds like you've done some various things within the mission. Um, what would you say is kind of your primary role with InSight? When I started on InSight, I started with mission operations. And that might sound strange, given that I started in 2014 before the spacecraft had launched. But mission operations includes all of the planning and the a lot of the onboard sequences and activities that we're going to do once we launch. And that starts well early in the process. When we started our mission op, there was uh, we had a we have what we call spacecraft team chief who oversees. The staffing and a lot of the staffing, a lot of the reviews, and a lot of the budget. And then you've got a systems lead, which can, depending on the size and scope of your program, can be more than one person. But uh, on the insight, in the case of insight, it was me. <laughs> and so, for basically from the time I started on insight until the time we launched, I did a lot of the pre planning in terms of both building and submitting then uh, sequences for that were planned to be used in flight. So I would build those, I would submit those to the Atlo team, and the Atlo team will run full tests that will include flight products as much as possible. Um, so I would build the flight products for InSight. I also take a lot of what we have from other missions in terms of lessons learned and commonalities among flight software and make sure that those are all documented for our mission and for our mission operations and our processes and procedures. And then once we launched, or actually right before we launched, we had people that were transitioned from the ATLO team to come over and do mission operations. And it's definitely a little bit of a different process. So when we had people come over from ATLO, I trained them on mission operations processes and how we build and test and review flight products. So when we got up into launch, then I was systems lead, not just a, a team of one, as I'd been up until that point. Uh, it was, there was a, you know, a team of six, I think six systems engineers that came over and that then I you know, trained and you know um, helped organize in terms of flight activities and who's building what flight activity and what needs to go into each flight activity once we're flying, once we're once we're in cruise. 
Uh, and then there's obviously the preparation. I mean, a lot of crews is preparation for landing, for preparation for EDL, and for surface operations. So there's always that forward looking of developing products that you're going to use in flight or in operations. And where were you during the landing? Sadly enough, uh, well, maybe not sadly enough, I was at home because I had taken the night shift of building the final products before the landing. So I had worked a 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. shift the night before to make sure the, to, to build and review the final products for the maneuver and the parameter updates. So I was at home and I was dialed in and I was watching it on television also with everybody else. <laughs> now you are one of the few people who have literally had a hand in landing a spacecraft on another planet. So that's actually more elite than being an Olympic gold medalist. How does that feel? Well, that's kind of wild. <laughs> Isn't that a crazy I thought? I <laughs> never, never thought about it that way. And it's, it's kind of funny because it's like, to some extent, you know, you, you get up and you go to work and you don't always... You don't always remember that you're landing a spacecraft on Mars. Sometimes you're reviewing paperwork and you're putting together documents and processes and procedures. And then just every now and then you stop and you see these pictures online from this spacecraft that you helped land and it's just this shock of, you know, I, I did this, I'm making a difference, you know? That is, that is pretty cool. And I would probably brag about that if I were you, that you're more elite Super than an Olympic gold medalist. <laughs> Every now and then, you know, it's, it's, you know it's, kind of, it's kind of a fun little conversation starter. Mm -hmm. You know, you're out with people or, and they say, oh, you know, what do you do? And you say, I, I do mission operations for Mars InSight Lander, for the for NASA's Mars InSight Lander. <laughs> and everybody kind of stops and a lot of people do a double take and they go, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Now, really, the Mars InSight mission is still somewhat in the early stages, um, but from your point of view, what's been the biggest surprise with this mission so far? Oh, um, I think probably, probably the biggest surprise of the mission so far, to me, might be the amount of wind and dust that we're seeing in the area, and we've actually... The, uh, the seismometer is picking up, I think, on the dust devils that are going by, which is kind of exciting. That's pretty neat because we don't always, I mean, we don't fully know other than from photos and, you know, the few years really that we've had landers and rovers on Mars of what, what all it's like. So that would be pretty neat to see. There was one point after we landed, yeah, there was one point after we landed where once we got the the wind and thermal shield off of the deck of the lander and we went to put it and we put it over the site that it uncovers sort of a pressure sensor for the for the vehicle and since then they've been posting a Mars weather at Insight's location which is always kind of fun to track to see what's the weather you know it's just like what's the forecast what's the weather like on Mars <laughs> I'm sure there will be an app for that soon enough <laughs> <laughs> Now, from this mission uh, to the future missions that we're going to have going to Mars, um, what do you think will go differently or be done differently for these future missions? 
Without knowing what that future mission wants to do or needs to look for on Mars, that's really hard. I think InSight, having built on the Phoenix lander, I think that there's a lot of applications that we could use this same base model for around Mars. And depending on what you want to do with it, uh, you know, the dynamics change in terms of do you need to take something off the deck and put it on the surface like we did on InSight? Or do you just need something on the surface, on the deck, you know, with, with an arm that can shovel like we did on Phoenix? But there's there's a lot of applications for what I think is a fairly simple but proven lander. And I'd, I'd love to see that that gets leveraged, but I mean, I you know, there's also a the interplanetary exploration and all these missions, they're driven by the science um, and they're driven by, you know, science goals from, you know, areas and areas of interest or study areas of interest that come, come from NASA. So whether or not, you know, we can align or if we can adapt anything from InSight, not just to other Mars missions, but to other interplanetary missions, that would be wonderfully exciting. Very cool. Didn't really answer your question, I guess, but... But, you know, like you said, it's hard to <laughs> say, though, because they are their future missions, and we're going to maybe have different goals with going to them, so... Yeah. I think it was a fair answer. <laughs> <laughs> so you've had a lot of really unique experiences that, you know, like you said, not many people have been able to have in this profession. How do you think that these experiences as a planetary explorer have changed you professionally or personally? I think InSight has changed me, I suppose in both a personal and professional sense, in a, in a confidence level. That when I, when we launched, or even right before we launched, and I became an actual team lead, and I needed to organize people and schedules, not just activities and, and products. And finding that I was able to do it and able to do it well as documented by the success of the, the mission so far. It was, it was, it was kind of nice because I, I don't know that I thought of myself as a, a leader or, you know, somebody who would be a good manager. I don't know that I, I you know, I don't know that I would make a good manager per se, but I enjoyed working with the team and I enjoyed Training, you know, I really enjoyed some of the training and some of the some of the junior engineers. That was, I liked, you know, I really liked seeing, you know, being able to help, you know, help junior engineers grow their career and learn and you know, be available and and watching them succeed and watching them learn. I guess the other thing that I think that you know, Insight has helped with is I've definitely been more engaged uh, publicly in terms of outreach. There's plenty of opportunities, I think, with this mission and the excitement around landing on Mars that, that enabled that. And it was a lot of fun to get out there and see the public interest in, in InSight. That's really cool. So, and I mean, like we said before, so few people have been able to do something like that that you know, I could definitely see where especially young engineers or even students would really look up to you and the things that you're doing because it's hopefully going to become a little bit more routine 
you know, we're saying in the next decade or two that, you know, we're looking to have future human presence on Mars and how exciting that is that you know, we're getting to that point now and the mission you're working on is kind of a, a footstep in getting us in that right direction there. So that actually leads me to my final question here. If you were on that first flight to go to Mars, if you had that chance to be the first person to put your foot down on the red planet, what do you think your first words would be? I'd love to say that I would be, I, I, I don't know, maybe if I had another, maybe if I had the six-month cruise to Mars to think about that question, I could come up with something really lasting and prophetic, but off the top of my head, it'd probably be something like, ooh, squishy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I'd have to, you know, I wonder how long it took Neil Armstrong to come up with the, the one small step quote. Mm-hmm. He had a three-day cruise. Yeah. <laughs> A little more time than me. <laughs> well, I always think that's a good question for us to think about because, you know, like you, I I would probably say something very similar to that. And just the excitement of it, the whole thing would be a lot of fun. And, you know, we've got the, the lag of time for things getting back to Earth. So maybe you could even change it after you said it. People wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Erin. It's been such a delight to speak with you today. And, you know, I think our listeners have heard some really cool stuff and hopefully then inspired themselves to take, you know, that next step that math helps get us there, that we use it every day, even if we don't always realize it. So we've really appreciated your time and having you here with us today. Well, thanks for inviting me and, you know, and for the work that you guys do. I would love to see more and more space exploration, both robotic and human. I think it's a testament to who we are as people to keep exploring. Absolutely. I always like the, the quote, adventure is out there. There's always something else for us to explore. Yeah, that's very good. <laughs> well, that does conclude this episode of the Space Foundation's Space for You podcast. Keep your eyes and ears open for more Space for You episodes by checking out our social media outlets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and of course our website at www.spacefoundation.org. On all of these outlets and more, it's our goal to inspire, educate, connect, and advocate for the space community because at the Space Foundation, we always have space for you. Thank you for listening.